and welcome to the podcast in the words of Vasit. Today I am joined by Professor Roger Berkowitz. Professor Roger is the founder and academic director of Hannah Arendt Center and Professor of Philosoph- Political Studies, Philosophy and Human Rights at Brad College. Welcome to the show, Roger. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Vasit. So uh, before we start about Hannah Arendt and her philosophy and her work, I would like uh, our listeners to know more about you. And would you like to tell our listeners about your work and uh, uh, your profession? Okay, uh, great. I, I actually have a, a strange uh, life path uh, in some ways. I, I did an interdisciplinary PhD and a law degree, a JD in the United States. Um, and my PhD was in jurisprudence. So I, I'm a lawyer and legal scholar and thinker by, by training. Um, and, and while I was doing that, I um, started reading uh, German and Greek philosophy and really was interested in the question of justice. And, 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 and then the question really for me became, how does justice change in the modern world of uh, where justice, where law becomes a tool or a means to an end instead of an ideal of a kind of revealed justice or a sense of common sense. And then when we try and know law uh, scientifically uh, through codifications and legal science, how does that change the idea of justice? And that was where my first book started. Um, I had always read Hannah Arendt and, and loved her work, but I was not a Hannah Arendt scholar. And then I started teaching at Bard College, uh, where I now am. And uh, Hannah Arendt was, was buried at Bard. Her husband taught at Bard for 17 years. She had a very close relationship with the longtime president of Bard, Leon Botstein. And so and she, at the end of her life, uh, she left her personal library to Bard. So um, when I arrived at Bard, um, because I was interested in her work, I started uh, teaching her work. I, I, I sponsored a big conference for her 100th birthday. And uh, one thing led to another. And uh, I, I was asked to start the Hannah Arendt Center by her literary executor, uh, Jerome Cohn, which we did. And it's been about 14 years now. It's grown uh, very widely. We have a weekly newsletter called Amor Mundi, which is um, read throughout the world. There's a, a big readership in, in India and Pakistan as well, actually. Um, and uh, we have annual conferences, virtual reading group with people from all over the world that meets every Friday. And, uh, and so more and more of my work is about trying to, um, inspired by Hannah Arendt, both her boldness and her bravery and fearlessness, but also her erudition, uh, try and speak and think about the world. Her motto that we've taken as our motto at the center is to think what we are doing. And, um, and that's what we try and do, uh, guided by her work uh, and think about the public world. Talked about uh, her work and as you talk, uh, talked about that uh, her magazines uh, are popular in India and Pakistan, as I told you, that mostly audience today is of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And you told that, I didn't know that, uh, it was quite surprising that Hannah had a close relationship with Bard College. And so it is great to know that her legacy still lives on in the, at Bard College. Yeah, very much so. I mean, like I said, she's buried there along with her husband, Heinrich Blucher, and, uh, and her library is there. So that's the, that, those are the two sort of 
reasons that, you know, we thought it would make sense to continue her legacy again at Bard and, and not as, while we do have scholars who come and, and use the library and do scholarship work on Hannah Arendt, we really see the center as um, uh, inspired more by her, her political work, her, her determination to understand the world um, and not to turn her into an object of scholarly research. Yes, it's great that her legacy is still continuing. So she, we shall move on to Hannah Arendt and her philosophy. But before moving on to her philosophy, would you like to tell our listeners Hannah Arendt's life and her beginnings? So how, what inspired her to become a philosopher and uh, gave, what went through her life to give such theories? Okay, great. I mean, Hannah Arendt was born in 1906 in Hanover in Germany. Uh, she was, uh, uh, was born to... Uh, largely secular German parents, um, a Jew, I'm sorry, Jewish parents. Um, her father died when she was six. She was raised by her mother. She was a brilliant pers- young person who read philosophy very early. Um, she uh, studied with Martin Heidegger, uh, and uh, this is sometimes neither here nor there, but was his lover for a period. Uh, she then went and studied with Karl Jaspers. So she studied with two of the great German philosophers of the early 20th century. Um, She was then arrested uh, in 1933 by the Gestapo while she was doing some work for uh, the Zionist organization run by Kurt Blumenfeld. And um, she escaped and went to France where she lived for uh, eight years and was eventually put into a concentration camp in France in Gours. She again escaped uh, and made her way to Portugal, where she came to the United States. Uh, and uh, she, for the first five or six years in the United States, made her living uh, writing for the German-Jewish press, Aufbau and other journals. Uh, m- much of her work was on Jer- Jewish issues and um, Zionism, uh, although she came to be disillusioned with Zionism. Uh, she then wrote her first major book. She had written two earlier books in Germany, um, The Origins of Totalitarianism, which is one of the greatest books of the, of the 20th century, uh, a magisterial account of, 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 of what, what, it, what, what allowed and what made it possible for totalitarianism to emerge both in Germany and in Soviet Bolshevist Russia. And uh, after that, she became quite famous. Uh, she wrote a book called The Human Condition, which is um, for many people her sort of magnus opus uh, about uh, the fate of man. What is it? What is the human condition in a world uh, after the rise of science? And and in a way, this is how I came to Hannah Arendt because I told you earlier I I was interested in the question of law and science. Hannah Arendt, as a student of Heidegger's, I uh, was very interested in what how the the rise of science and the alienation that science brings to the world. Um, will change what it means to be human. Um, In the late 50s and early 60s, she wrote a lot about totalitarianism and about these questions of science, uh, but also questions about education um, and truth-telling. And then she went to cover the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Israel and Jerusalem in 1961. And uh, she wrote her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, uh, a report on the banality of evil which has uh, become one of the most famous and most controversial books of the 20th century, um, in which she argues uh, that Eichmann was 
Uh, monster, uh, even though he was clearly evil and clearly was in large part responsible for the murder of millions of Jews, and not just the murder of Jews, but the genocide of, of millions of Jews. Um, but she argues that it's important to understand what allowed a seemingly normal uh, family man to do this. And um, she, she tries to understand she, she comes up with a phrase that is the only mentioned once in the book, but is the last sentence, the word and thought-defying banality of evil. Um, and I can explain what that means, but, but that's probably her most best-known book and also her most controversial book. Okay, so I think we should start with her first book and the most, as you, told, as you said, the most, one of the most famous books of 20th century, Origins of Totalitarianism. She also talked about Hitler and Stalin's regime. So what uh, did she tell her in book and what did she tell about the totalitarianism and how does it uh, rise in the nations? Yeah, so, I mean, the book is 500 pages and it's... Um, it has three parts. Uh, the first part is called anti-Semitism. The second part is called imperialism. And the third part is called totalitarianism. Um, uh, the, the, the basic structure then is that she says that Nazism, uh, and she started writing the book, writing about Nazism. Her interest in Bolshevism came a little later. Nazism could not have happened, she says, without anti-Semitism. And, and the, the real, there's a lot of innovative parts of the first part of the book on anti-Semitism, but one is that she makes a distinction that no one really has had made before, and most people still don't make, between Jew hatred and anti-Semitism, such that Jew hatred is a kind of prejudice against Jews, a not liking Jews, a willingness to kill a Jew or discriminate against a Jew. But anti-Semitism, says something different. It emerges, and Jew hatred is old, but anti-Semitism emerges only in the late 19th century as an ideology, as a claim, not just that we don't like Jews, or we discriminate against Jews, or maybe we kill a Jew here or there, or we kill some Jews in this village, but it's the idea that the Jews are the problem that's making the world bad, and that in order to fix it, we have to exterminate all the Jews. And this political ideology of anti-Semitism she says was new and was something um, that had never been seen before. Similarly, she'll then make a claim that the Bolsheviks had an ideology of classism. Now, again, there's always been hatred of rich people and hatred of bourgeoisie and hatred of aristocrats. It's not new. But the idea that the bourgeoisie in itself was uh, what was causing all the problems in the world and that we could eliminate the bourgeoisie and bring the proletariat to rule and have everyone be equal and no bourgeoisie, the world would be a utopia. This was an ideology. And so the book, um, the anti-Semitism chapter uh, sort of looks into this idea of, of Judaism, of anti-Semitism as an ideology. Uh, the second part on imperialism uh, makes the argument that um, uh, as an ideology uh, of anti-Semitism and of world domination. Uh, Nazism and Bolshevism were not nationalist movements. This is a very important uh, thing to realize today as we see rising nationalism. They were actually anti-nationalist movements. They 
German Nazism, she says, hated Germany. And she thinks Bolshevism didn't like Russia. They were willing to destroy Germany and Russia in order to bring about a world domination and um, a Third Reich or um, the the International. And, and she sees this as, as deeply important. And so um, she traces in this chapter on imperialism the way uh, these movements, uh, uh, Nazism and Bolshevism, are non-national. And because they're non-national, they have to, what they unify around is an ideology. And in the one case, the ideology was racism, which is a transnational ideology. And the other was classism, which again was a transnational international ideology. And so racism becomes a, a central part of this book. So there's two chapters in the middle of it on racism and bureaucracy. And then uh, the, it ends with... Uh, totalitarianism emerged was also that the fact that the nation state system which is how the world had been organized up until that period was breaking apart and was in decline and was in decline for reasons that are unavoidable in her mind basically in a nation state you have citizens who are supposed to be equal and yet you also have nationals right so that and the nationals so in german and german nationals but there were minorities jews in, in the czech republic there are czechs but they're also slovaks uh, in Poland, there are Poles, but also Jews and and Slovaks and Germans. And the problem is that uh, on the one hand, you have the nation, the national majority, which is supposed to have privileges because they see them as their state. On the other hand, you have a state supposed to treat everyone equal. And she says that this leads to uh, a problem. You either have to assimilate the minorities, and they didn't always want to be assimilated, or you had to kill them or expel them. And this was this breakdown of the nation state, the transnationalism and the racism uh, are for her the main causes of, or not causes, origins of totalitarianism. And they provide, and then the, the, the other thing that she talks about as another origin of totalitarianism is the loss of religion and tradition, the loss of meaning, the sense that people for a long time, a thousand years, more than that, have had a sense of being, whether they were Germans or Gauls or French or Indians or Muslims or Jews. And the breakdown of these meanings and these systems of meaning uh, created what she called a homelessness or an existential loneliness. And this loneliness made it such that there was a deep need to belong to something that mattered. And this need to belong mattered put at a time of the breakdown of the nation state and the rise of ideologies like racism and classism lead to movements, ideological movements that told a coherent story that we're all Aryans and we are above everybody else and therefore we are important and we're going to be part of a third Reich that rules the world or we're communists, part of world history that is unfolding and we are the agents of world history and it gives people a sense of importance and meaning. And all these things together, I mean, it's a big book. You know, one of the things I love about Hannah Arendt is she's not a theorist in the traditional sense. She doesn't have like an easy, coherent theory. In fact, all of her work is organized against easy, coherent theories. And part of what she's arguing is that today, amidst this loneliness, there's a deep craving amongst humanity for easy theories that leads us to simplify and to tell coherent fake stories, uh, you know, fake news, uh, ideologies, 
and that this all together that I've been describing is sort of this soup in which totalitarian uh, movements can emerge and eventually come to power. And, and that's the story she tells in this really wonderfully complicated, long, very readable, but hard to describe in any simple way book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Okay, so I greatly described wonderful work, Roger, uh, Professor Roger. And so what, uh, so these are the things that you told, how does it uh, rise? So were, were there any other precautions that how could we avoid uh, totalitarianism and, and can we uh, see the emergence? Can we, is it possible that we notice the emergence of totalitarianism and uh, try to stop it? That's a great question, Vazad. Uh, and, and it's a question that she she asks over and over in, in her life, um, you know, early on. And when she wrote the book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, there's a sentence that she repeats twice in the book, once in the preface and once in the preface to the chapter to the to the to the book on anti-Semitism. And it's that she says comprehension. Is the unpremeditated. And resisting of reality, whatever it may be. Comprehension is the unpremeditated facing up to and resisting of reality, whatever it may be. So in many ways, this is to me the most important sentence she ever wrote. You know, I, I, it's the one that I, I come back to all the time. What does it mean? It means that to, to, the only way to resist totalitarianism is to comprehend it and to comprehend it in such a way that you understand it, you um, face face up to it, face up to the fact that the reason totalitarianism happened was not because some guy named Hitler and another guy named Stalin existed. It's because there are there are real reasons, needs, human needs that these movements in the 20th century spoke to and answered and needed. And we need to be honest with ourselves and face up to the fact that in the 20th century, amidst, again, this loneliness, the need for coherence, the need to be meaning, to feel meaningful in a meaningless world can lead to this kind of a movement. We need to face up to that. And only once we understand it, can we resist it. She puts it in another way at the end of her life. Um, so I told you that in, in 1963, she published a book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, which caused all this controversy. And um, at the end of her life, she was writing a book, which she never finished, called The Life of the Mind. And um, the first, and it was going to have three parts, one on thinking, one on willing, and one on judging. And she finished drafts of the first two parts. She never wrote the third part on judging. But in the thinking part, she opens it in the preface, raising the question of, might it be that thinking, and we have to ask what thinking is, but thinking is a very important word for her, but thinking, might it be that thinking is what can um, uh, be a prophylactic and save us from the doing of mass evil in the modern world and the reason and thinking here is like what i said before is comprehension it's the unpremeditated facing up to and resisting of reality whatever it is it's the insistence that we 
what is in its perplexity, in its confusion, in its chaos, in its horror, and we don't flinch from it. And we don't say, oh, well, we don't like racism, so we're not going to talk about it. Or we're not going to let racists talk on campus. And we're not going to let, um, you know, uh, Nazis talk. Or we're not going to read Nazism in class because it's bad. Or we're, we're not going to read racists in class because it's bad. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, that's part of the world. And if you don't read them, um, you're not going to understand the world such that when they become popular, you're not going to be able to beat them. And so thinking from her means to let your mind go wandering. It's another metaphor she uses. To think from the perspective of as many different people as you can. And in thinking from all these different perspectives, understand the Nazis, understand the Bolshevists, understand the racists, understand, you know, all the different religions, understand all the different, you know, viewpoints and make an effort to really understand the world and its complexity. And once you do that, then you make your judgment. But she says the actual act of thinking might be what protects us from becoming ideologues, from becoming the kind of people who um, embrace coherent, simple truths. Because thinking, she says, breaks down all certainties. Thinking doesn't ever lead to truth. This is like one of the this is one of the insights that she has that's so different from much of the history of philosophy. Thinking doesn't lead to truth. Thinking leads to a better understanding of the world and its complexity and plurality. And that for her may be the only path to resisting evil in the modern world since evil is the ideological, the attempt to, to the attempt through violence to enforce ideological simplicity and conformity in the world. Okay, so what she meant was, uh, for example, if someone is a communist, he should also read the books of likes of Adam Smith and other capitalists. And if someone is a capitalist, he should uh, read, read the work of Lenin and Marx. And for example, we should also read the books of uh, Minecraft, like the books of Hitler and fascism, not just to follow them, just to understand the things that if they come forward, we can deal with them. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's right. Um, you know, she was often criticized, uh, even early on when she wrote The Origins of Totalitarianism, because she cites many Nazis in the book. And people have said, oh, this proves that she was an anti-Semite. This doesn't prove anything. But it's because she felt that if you were going to resist Nazism, you had to actually understand it. And the only way to understand it was to take it seriously. So it's not just that you read it. It's that you actually really take it seriously. And similarly, when she wrote the book Eichmann in Jerusalem, which she was so criticized, one of the reasons she was heavily criticized is that she made an effort to understand Eichmann. She wanted to understand who was this guy who um, helped bring about the final solution and why did he do it? And she really got very deep into him. And people said, oh, she liked him. She excused him. And that's just totally wrong. She didn't excuse him. She tried to understanding doesn't mean that you agree or excuse. It simply means you understand and then you can make a judgment. And if you read her book, her judgment is very clear. He was evil and he should be hung. And she says he should be killed and erased from the earth. Um, so to say that she excused him or somehow is ridiculous if you actually read her book, but because she sought to understand him, 
people thought, um, mistook that for a kind of sympathy with him. Okay, so would you like to tell us just more about the Eichmann story? As we know, he was uh, known as a final solution for uh, the members at concentration camp. So what made him, according to Hannah, what made him a normal human, not a villain or a monster? Well, I mean, you know, she she went. So Eichmann was, uh, uh, you know, was a was a middle level uh, lieutenant colonel uh, in in the German in the Gestapo, in the SS, uh, and he um, he was head of the uh, the Jewish affairs unit. And from nineteen, you know, so first of all, he he came from a a middle class uh, background in in, in Austria. In Lens, I think, and his, and he tried to get a job as a vacuum cleaner salesman, and he didn't do very well. Uh, he got married. He was looking for a job. He got introduced to someone who said, "Oh, here's this Nazi party. It's just starting in 1931-32," uh, and he got a job, and he moved to Germany. And um, you know, he was put in charge of the Jewish department, and so he started reading about Jews. He read about Zionism. Now. He wasn't that bright, but he wasn't an idiot. He certainly wasn't a scholar, but he read Herzl, you know, the, the Jewish Zionist. Uh, and he read a couple of books. And, you know, the German says, we want to get rid of the Jews. And so he said, oh, well, there's a good re- way to get rid of the Jews. We can be Zionists. And he, you know, I mean, one of the things he says at the trial is I was like a Zionist. I believed in Zionism. I wanted the Jews to have their own country. I didn't hate the Jews. I wanted them out, you know, they, they, we wanted them out of Germany, but they wanted their own country. So I was helping the Jews. And then, you know, so from 1933 to, you know, 1934, 35, before Kristallnacht, you know, you could think of it one way. Then from Kristallnacht until 1940, you know, he's involved with deporting Jews. It's a much different thing, but still not killing them. And he often worked with Jews. I mean, wherever he went, he would go into t- t- the, the, the Jewish town. He would find the Jewish leaders. He would insist that they appoint leaders and he would work them and say, here's how we're going to get you, you know, emigrate. We're going to get people out. We're going to deport. We're going to give you immigration papers if we can. Now, of course, we're going to take your money because that's what the German state requires. And we're going to make you go out poor. You know, there was no illusion that he was doing a good job or he's doing good things. He wasn't. He was doing the work of an evil government. But from her point of view, again, he was doing his job and he was trying to do it well. It was only in 1940-41, right, that the final solution becomes uh, implemented. And, you know, he goes, she, she talks a lot about that in the book, about how when he first encountered it, he was shocked. But, you know, and he, he was actually, he was sent to, uh, he rarely ever saw anyone murder. He didn't murder anyone himself, or at least he says he didn't, and they didn't prove that he did. Um, but he was sent to uh, see some murders uh, at one place, and he came back and told his superior officer that he threw up because he was so appalled at what was happening, and that how could we be doing this? It was going to corrupt the German youth, and as a and as a, and as a superior officer said, "This is what we're doing. Get over it." And he did. And there was a one of the Jewish German judges at the trial said to him, "How long did it take?" for you to get over this and become okay with it. And he said about three weeks. And so there's a wonderful line in, in RN's book where she says, the, really the most important lesson that this whole trial teaches us is that it took about three weeks 
for a normal person's conscience to move from thinking it's wrong to kill people to thinking, well, it's wrong to violate my orders to kill people. And that switch in conscience from a conscience that says, I know what's right to, I know what's right is to obey the law is what Arendt um, saw as the real lesson that someone like Eichmann teaches us, how easy it is to just in three weeks change our moral compass like that. And you know what she says is he sees that he talked in cliches, he was stupid. She, he was smart in a kind of sense that he was good practically, but he wasn't a thinker. And um, you know what she said is he was able to convince himself that, well, the Jews and the Germans are at war and this is what we do with the people at war and I have to fight for the Nazis. And, you know, she's like, look, he may have been anti-Semitic in the sense that he had a prejudice against Jews. We don't know, but we probably think he does. But he wasn't, it, he wasn't like, he wasn't like a, a, a you know, a, a foaming at the mouth madman who wanted to go out and kill Jews. He was led to it step by step through his job and through bureaucracy and through this. And what she says is the reason in the end that he killed Jews, he may have been an anti-Semite. We don't know, you know, probably was, but the reason he killed Jews was not because an anti, he was an anti-Semite. There are plenty of anti-Semites out there who didn't kill Jews. The reason he killed Jews was because he came to believe that following the Nazi ideology, which gave him a sense of power and importance and meaning, was more important than his old morality. And that way that his, the way what she's describing, the way that he, he came to see what he's doing as a part of um, giving himself meaning and, and being a joiner and being part of a movement and thus being important in the world, what she's saying is it's evil, but it's not evil as we typically think of it as a monster who wants to go out and kill people because they hate people or things like that. That was not Eichmann. He was a monster in that he was so normal and terrifyingly normal that because he just couldn't, couldn't think from the perspective of the Jews and what was happening to them, he, he would say things like, you know, these Jews, they, they didn't always understand that I needed to do this and I wanted their help in doing it. I wanted their help in getting them places and they were resisting. They didn't understand. And she's like, he couldn't think from their perspective. He could only think from his perspective. And that limit of thinking from this superficial perspective is what she calls banality. And what she says is that in the modern world where most evil is done not by madmen, but by bureaucracies. It's this banality, this thoughtlessness that is what makes evil possible. Okay, so great explanation. And, and we can, uh, I think we can understand that why Hannah is important uh, today and why should we read her work. So uh, can you tell us about the importance, more importance of Hannah in today's world and why should more people be encouraged to read her work and know about her work? Well, I mean, you know, one of the, I think Hannah Arendt is experiencing like one of these explosive moments right now. And, you know, I think that's for a number of reasons. Uh, one is, um, you know, she writes about totalitarianism and authoritarianism and fascism. And 
um, around the world, there are regimes that are emerging um, that uh, are not totalitarian or maybe some are close, but are are certainly um, uh, moving in that direction. Um, She also uh, wrote a lot about democracy. Um, she, she, her book, The Human Condition, and then another book of hers on revolution um, are, are, are really books about um, what it means to be human. Uh, and part of what she argues is that one of the most important aspects of being human is to um, matter, is to matter in the world. Um, and the way we matter is not by being alive. And so here's her critique of human rights discourse, right? Human rights, she, she says, it's a, the right to live is not a human right. Animals have a right to live. What the human right is, it's the right to matter. And the way she says you matter is you appear in public and people take notice of you. And the way you appear in public and people take notice of you is by acting. And the way you act is you do something in the public sphere that people can see such that other people look up and say, I wasn't expecting that. That was new. And so acting and freedom are very much entwined for her. And so freedom is the freedom to act with others in public in ways that matter. And, and so this is her deep-rooted d- democracy that, that everyone, insofar as they're right and this capacity to act, to do surprising things. Now, of course, some people are better than others. Some people will spend their whole lives and never be noticed by anybody. Uh, And some people uh, will obviously be noticed quite a lot. And some of them will be noticed in ways that they're killed because they're noticed in a negative way. And some people will be noticed in ways they change the world. But but for her, um, this deep human capacity to act and to matter um, are, 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 are fundamental to, 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 what it mean, to what it means to be human, but also what it means to live in a free world. And, um, uh, you know, as a result, she was a, a, a huge proponent of, she thought that revolutions and protest movements and civil disobedience um, were actually some of those moments where we're most alive and we're most human because those are movements when we enter the world and act in concert with others in ways that people have to pay attention to us and, and take note and we change the world. And in doing so, um, we can um, re-imbue a kind of meaning in the world to insert, revitalize the world with a new meaning that will eventually become stale and corrupt and it will need a new revolution or a new protest or a new civil disobedience. And so she, um, you know, I think she, she, calls, she calls certain situations revolutionary situations. And those are situations in which the, the existing world and the existing uh, uh, institutions have lost their legitimacy. And she says it's in those revolutionary situations where people no longer believe in the authority of the existing institutions and, and political structures that um, power is there. It's lying in the street to be picked up, but it's not easy to pick it up. And 
it needs real thinkers to pick it up because it's not just you don't you don't simply by saying I want a revolution. You've got to actually articulate in a way that makes sense to people a new idea that will rally people to your cause. And so I think the re- one of the reasons she's so important today is that on and off for the last hundred years, really since the 1915, 1920 period, we've been living in a series of revolutionary situations. Um, the most recent one started, you know, probably in the 1980s or you could say 1960s, whichever you want to put it. But there's a deep dissatisfaction in liberal constitutional governments in the West, but all over the world, a deep sense of, of loneliness, meaninglessness, a sense that the institutions, be they religious institutions or political institutions or economic institutions, don't have the authority um, that would give them, uh, that make us obey them or, or, or believe in them. And so people are looking for revolution. And Arendt um, is the great thinker of what a revolution is. And what she says is that revolution is not the same thing as liberation, right? So, you know, like during the Arab Spring, you had all these countries in the Middle East liberate themselves from, from, from dictators. That's not a revolution. The United States revolution didn't happen when the United States won the war and freed itself from England and King and King George. A revolution is not liberation. It's the instantiation of freedom. And that only happens when we then build and construct institutions that um, allow us to be free. And that's a very difficult thing. And she writes this book about the American and French revolutions where she argues that the French failed to do this in France. And she thinks the Americans succeeded in doing it in the United States. Um, But she then thinks that that successful revolution um, failed uh, by the mid 20th century. Uh, And she has a lot of reasons for that. But she thinks that for a good hundred years, America did succeed in in, in creating a revolutionary free society um, uh, that has unfortunately been been lost. but I think that the one of the, so there's a lot of reasons she's read today. One is you know the topics she writes about, uh, but also I think she really does deeply understand this sense of hopelessness, rootlessness, meaninglessness, and loneliness that so many people in our world feel. And she was one of the few people who really wrote from a profound ex- understanding that, and yet with a hope that it could be um, overcome uh, through revolutionary action. Okay, so uh, wonderful work in explaining Hannah's work and this podcast. One of the meaning was to uh, raise awareness about Hannah's work and how exceptional philosopher she was. Thank you so much, Professor Roger, for coming on the podcast and giving your all-important time. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, have a great day. Okay, um, so we're done, right? Yes, we're done. Okay, uh, I hope that was good for you. Um, yes, it's been good. All right. Uh, you'll send me a link to it when it's up? Yeah, sure. I'll send you the link. Okay. Okay. Thanks very much. Ooh.